Well, we're in a series through the Gospel of Matthew and really specifically through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible on you or or an app on your phone, if you want to pull it out, uh, we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to pick up in verse 43. I wonder if my clicker, it just won't work this far maybe. Oh well. The laser pointer still works. (laughs) I won't use that though. Uh, We're going to start in verse 43. And uh, what we have here, so we're nine weeks into the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the sixth saying, the sixth and final of Jesus' sayings, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now there's this formula that Jesus repeats over and over again, which is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he gives this statement of something that his audience has heard from, from other avenues, whether it be from Old Testament scripture or from the teachers of the day, and Jesus gives a new interpretation and today we have the sixth version of that, and it's, it's the kind of final one. And then he gets this statement in verse, I think it's 48, um, which sums up what he's been saying for the past, well, probably a couple minutes when he actually delivered it, but for the past nine weeks in our case. So we're going to start in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Kind of an interesting text for the week. Uh, In some ways, it's so simple and so clear that we risk, by spending a lot of time on it, overcomplicating something that's really straightforward and really clear. Uh, Just like last week, where, where Jesus says in verse 39, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It's a really simple and clear command. And this week is the same thing. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we could just stop there. We could read that and say, okay, we're going to return, have three more songs. We'll probably have four songs to fill up some more time. But that very clear command raises all sorts of questions, Uh, all kinds of questions, Uh, sorts of things like, well, that's a nice ideal, but here in the real world, how does that actually play out? Or things like, well, what if someone is hurting me? What What if the enemy is hurting me? What do I do then? And how can you possibly do that? And, and why would you possibly do that? What, what would possibly compel you to do that? It's, it's dumb. It's weakness. You need to stand up for yourself. And so what I want to do today is spend time talking about a couple of those questions. Because Jesus is calling his followers, he's calling us, he's calling you, he's calling me, to love our enemies because that is what God is like. So Jesus is calling you, to love your enemies and show compassion and grace and kindness because that is what God is like. Uh, What we're going to spend time on today uh, is some of those questions. And in order to do that, we have to start with why. Why does Jesus tell us to love our enemies? So if you have your Bibles out or you have your apps, turn back to Exodus 34. And I'm going to have it on the screen. This is a description, uh, for those of you who um, are familiar with the Old Testament, 
What happens at Exodus 34 is Moses talks to God face to face. We get the language of like talking to a friend. And Moses gets bold one day and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, well, if that happens, you're going to die. So I won't do that to you, but I will show, I'll pass by you and you can look at me as I pass. And that's what happens in, in Exodus 34, starting in verse six. It says, and he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their sin, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So I want you to have this in the back of your minds as we read again the text for today of what Jesus is saying when he describes the kind of God that God is. So one more time, a lot of Bible flipping, but go back to Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So it's kind of hard to capture in verse 45 uh, but you, you kind of get the sense if you read multiple translations, but what verse 45 is saying is that you show yourselves to be children of your Father in heaven. What Jesus isn't saying is that you're supposed to love your enemies so that you can become children of God. What Jesus is saying is you are called to love your enemies because that's what God does and that's what people in his family do. So verse 45 is essentially saying so that you show yourselves to be like your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and both are signs of blessing. For those of us who've been in Spokane for the last, like feels like 10 months for winter, it's been really dreary and dark and uh, today's a really beautiful day. And we get the like, that sun is a blessing. We look outside and like, okay, that's blessing. But save the rain for the people, those evil people on the west side of the state. But what Jesus is saying is essentially God gives new life to people every single day. And he gives rain, which in a desert society that tries to grow crops, rain is necessity for life. So God gives new life and he gives sustenance to people every single day, regardless of their disposition towards him. God gives new life every day to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just because you're, you're here today, God gave a gift to you. The gift of waking up every single morning was a gift from God. And that doesn't mean that you got it all figured out and that doesn't mean that you're doing everything right. What it means is that God chose to give you another day. Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. And that we see happen over and over again, especially in that Exodus 34 passage. So in a, in a big sense, God allows new life every day. God allows rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. But then for us individually, God gives us new life and God gives us provision every single day. But why does God do that? You know, because if we're honest, 
We didn't deserve to wake up this morning. None of us did. Every last one of us, whether we feel like it or not, we've committed sins in the past, or we committed sins on our way here, or we commit evil day after day, week after week, and yet God allowed each of us to wake up this morning, myself included, and he allowed his son to rise on us this morning. And, and the question is, why? Why does, God put up, why does God do that? Why does God put up with us? Even when we act like enemies of God, why does God do that? Well, the very short and simplified answer is, that is the character of God. That is who God is. Normally, when we're asked to describe God, we, we use language like he's omnipresent or he's all-powerful. Maybe we say things like God is love or God is holy. And all those things are true. But when God describes himself, what is the sort of language that he uses? Well, that's the Exodus 34 passage. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the sort of language that God uses to describe himself. That is the character of the God that we love and the God that we serve and the God who has adopted us into his family. And Exodus 34 makes even more sense, or it blows your mind even more if you understand what's happened in Exodus 32. So if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, what happens in Exodus 32 is after the nation of Israel has been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they're in the desert, they're on their way to the promised land, Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God. And they essentially say, what's taking those guys so long? Okay, Aaron, who's Moses' brother, will you make us an idol so that we can worship it? And so they melt down their jewelry that they got when they left Egypt and they make a golden calf and they worship the golden calf in Exodus 32. And they, uh, the language in the NIV is they commit revelry. They do a lot of bad things in worshiping this idol. And it's, it's this attempt at the very first, first moment to throw off God, to try and control him, to try and just, just throw off everything that they have just entered into in the covenant with God. And so that's really key to understand that that happens right before God calls himself compassionate and gracious. Because God is saying he's compassionate and gracious even to those people who worship calves. He says, you people who even worship calves, you people who have thrown me off at the first opportunity, you people, so to speak, who've thrown your middle finger up at me at the very first opportunity, I still will show mercy and compassion to you. I will show mercy, mercy and compassion because that is my very nature. So when Jesus calls you to be a child of your father in heaven, he's referring to this compassionate and gracious father and he's calling you to be like him. Even those who spit in your face, even those who persecute you, even those who say evil about you, even those who steal your parking space. We are called to love our enemies. We're called to love our neighbors and our enemies regardless of their disposition towards us because that is what God is like. Because God loves even golden calf worshipers. God loves even porn addicts. God loves even murderers. God loves those who've cheated on their spouses, those who have lied, those who have stolen, those who've started rumors to the greedy, to the gluttonous, to those who harbor anger and bitterness to even someone like me, to even someone like you. God has shown in Christ and God continues to show his compassion and mercy to each and every one of us. And so by extension, who are we to harbor anger and hate against our enemies? 
This is Jesus' reasoning. If, if that is the way that God shows himself to the evil and wicked and unrighteous, who are we to withhold dignity and respect and love, which God shows to the people we call our enemies? So I want you to consider for a moment, who are your enemies? For some of us, that, that, that's a really easy answer because we can think of a list of people, whether they be uh, people we know individually or groups of people, we can think of that whoever fits that category really easily. And for some of us, we think, well, I don't really have any enemies. Uh, we talked about this, well, we talked about this in our missional community earlier this week. And part of the question was, well, I, I really don't have any enemies. So how does this text really affect me? And so what I'm, I'm saying what I'm about to say, not to convince you that you have enemies, but just to maybe help us think through the implications of Jesus' calling for each and every one of us. So I'll ask some other questions. Who is the other? When you talk about them or those people or they, who are they? Uh, if there's a group of people who you readily associate with and you would help out at the drop of a hat, and there's another group of people who you say, I would definitely never do that for them, who is that in-group and who is that out-group? Remember how Jesus states it. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And the tax collectors were, these, were, were uh, really not well liked. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Jesus, in part, is explaining that disciples, the people who live in God's kingdom, are people who love the in-group and the out-group those who they think readily of when they, when they think of neighbors and enemies. Disciples are called to love them indiscriminately. So I want to introduce us to a concept from Henry Nouwen in this book called Compassion. And it's actually written by a handful of people, um, but Henry Nouwen's the namesake on it. And what they say, essentially, and I, this has been really helpful for me to understand this, is that we live uh, in most of our relationships with the other person on some part of this spectrum from compassion to competition. Because we live in a world oriented around competition. We compare and we rank which schools are best, which majors get paid the most, uh, which countries have the highest output or GDP or quality of life. Uh, we compare and we compete to have the best sports teams. Go Zags. They're gonna, I, I hope they win. Then my bracket will do really well. But we compete to have the lowest interest rates. We compete when we apply for jobs. We compete when we apply for college. We compete when we apply for grad school. We compete for parking spaces. We compete for the, be, to be the first in line when we buy tickets. And, and we compare with our friends constantly. Is their job better? Are their vacations better? Is their car better? Is their house better? Is their marriage better? We compete on who can look the best, who can lose the most weight, and keep their figure the longest. We live in a constant state of competition and comparison with one another. We vie against one another constantly. And so in each of our relationships, we live somewhere on this spectrum between competition and compassion. Now, when I, when I read through Compassion, which is a really short book, and I totally recommend it, I, all these relationships started flooding in, in my mind. Is I, I know myself, and I know for, for most of my relationships, or all my relationships, they fall somewhere on the spectrum. 
There's a select few of people who I'm willing to show compassion to readily, and there's more people who live on the other side of the spectrum, but to varying degrees. Some people are further away who I'm more against or more antagonistic towards. Certain people are more in the middle. So I'll give you a couple examples, trivial example. The gym. The gym, at, I, I work at Whitworth, and so I work out at the UREC, and uh, there's a handful of other people in there. So when that dude picks up the 35, I walk over, I pick up the 40s. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do it. So I, I, just, I, I automatically enter into this, like, this competition. And then when he sets up 200 pounds to deadlift, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do 210. And then I, I try and do it, but I can't do it. I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I've, I did a longer workout than he did anyways. He probably takes steroids. So I make all these excuses. <laughs> I make all these excuses because I, I live in this state of competition and comparison. That's really a trivial, trivial example. But a more serious example is how I relate to the, the, the people that I actually I know. Or, or more often, the people that I, I follow on social media. Uh, because I compare whose jobs are cooler and who gets to travel to cooler places, uh, who gets to drink better coffee. And so when I talk to them or when I post stuff, I intentionally curate things to make it seem like I am as, at least as good as them, if not better than them. The things that I share in conversation or the things that I put out there are meant in this sort of comparison and competition constantly. I can also think of the way that I, I, I used to think about uh, Latino immigrants when I grew up in Los Angeles. So I grew up in, in Southern California, about two miles from the beach. It was sunny every day, 75 every day. It was great. I miss it a little bit. <laughs> uh, but growing up, I heard this narrative about uh, Latino immigrants, especially living in Southern California, and I, I had this this sense of my group and them. I viewed them as this sort of competition. They're going to take the jobs that I otherwise would get. They're not pulling their, their fair weight, as if I was as an 18-year-old. And I don't care where they came from or why they came here. I only cared about how it affected me. And I obviously lived in a state of competition constantly with, with zero compassion, zero compassion. And so what Jesus teaches us here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is that life in the kingdom isn't about competition and who is my enemy and how do I set myself up well against them, though that's normal and natural and comes easiest to us. Life in the kingdom is about being compassionate as God is compassionate, showing mercy and grace as God shows mercy and grace, loving our neighbors, even loving our enemies because that is what God himself is like. And this is entirely a choice for us to make. So setting aside the, the, if you can't think of enemies readily available in your mind, but if you can, take this into consideration. The option to love our enemy or hate our enemy, to love the in-group, shun the out-group, this is a choice on each of us. Uh, Because if we simply choose to remain in a state of competition or to remain hating our enemies, What we're allowing is for them or for some outside person to dictate the nature of our relationship. I think this quote captures it in a really poetic and beautiful way. It's from Alexander McLaren, who is a Scottish pastor from the 18th century. One more. There we go. 
So McLaren, in commenting on this, says, to flash back from the mirror of the heart, the hostile looks which are flung at us is our natural impulse. But why should we always leave it to the other man to pitch the keynote of our relations, of our relations with him? Why should we echo only his tones? Cannot we leave his discord to die into silence and reply to it by something more musical? Two thunderclouds may cast lightning at each other, but they waste themselves in the process. Better to shine meekly and victoriously on as the moon does on piled masses of darkness till it silvers them with its quiet light. Let's turn to a second question. How? How do we actually do that? Uh, what does it mean to love your enemy? And if I can think of several enemies, whether it be near or far, how do, far, how do I love them? What do I do if someone is actually hurting me or hurting someone else? What do I do in that instance? Well, we're going to come back to that. Because I think first, what we have to uh, get on the same page with is what is love? And not the Night at the Roxbury song. Every time I say that phrase, I think of the Night at the Roxbury song. But we have to get on the same page of what is love. Because if we're going to love our neighbors, if we're going to love our enemies, we have to understand what it looks like to actually love. And we take for granted that we know how to do that. We assume that because we say it all the time and because everyone else says it all the time that we know what it means to love someone. But I'm not convinced that we really know how to do that. Thomas Merton, uh, who was a Trappist monk, uh, has this book called No Man is an Island. And in it, I read this within the last six months and has really, really helped me to understand this as well. He has this phrase or this quote. He says, I don't know if I have a slide or not. He says, love seeks one thing only, the good of the one loved. It leaves all the other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward. So what Merton is saying is that the end, the goal, the purpose of love is the good of the one that you love. Loving someone is seeking their good, seeking what is best for them, seeking what God wants for them. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion or sentiment. It's actually a choice. It's an act of the will. As the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you're familiar with that, what, what the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us is that love is a response to someone in need. It's not a feeling that you get to someone you like in its fullness. Old Testament law, okay, so, so the nation of Israel was commanded to love their neighbors, and this was codified in certain ways within Old Testament law. So that's what those couple passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it showed the nation of Israel really, really clear ways, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Things like, in Deuteronomy 22, you're, you're supposed to place a retaining wall, that's what a para parapet is, around the roof of your house to keep people from falling off. Uh, you're also not supposed to take millstones as pledge, as uh, um, collateral, because if you do that, then someone's not going to be able to eat. They're not going to be able to grind grain. And then in Leviticus 19, we get the gleaning laws. You're not supposed to pick over the corners of your field. You're not supposed to go back through and pick up the things that drop on the ground so that the poor and the foreigner might have something to eat. There's really tangible ways for love to get put into action throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see that there's this call to action to share with those in need, whether that need is for food or water or lodging or clothing or healing or friendship. 
It's a call to love one another as God has loved us, to show the compassion and mercy and grace and patience and kindness to one another that God has shown to each of us. But I want the takeaway for each of us today to be quite simply that loving someone is seeking their good. It's not letting someone do whatever they want because what they want might be destructive or dangerous. And love is not doing whatever comes most naturally and easy, easily to us because most often what comes most naturally and easily actually is competition. And love is not having warm, fuzzy feelings about something. Love is always personal and it's relational and it's a desire for the good of the other person. And so that's how I think we answer those difficult questions about what we do if someone is hurting us, is abusing us, or someone else. And so as I talk about this, I, I realize that it might bring up some, some difficult um, memories and I'm going to make it really, really um, sound really simple, but I know that it's complex and it's complicated. So, so if, if you need someone to walk through that process with you, we're here and we would love to walk through that process with you. But what I mean is that in certain instances where if you, if when I say who is your enemy, you think of a specific person who has either hurt you or hurt your family or hurt a loved one in the past, what, what we don't want to understand love to be is just being passive and saying, well, that person can continue doing that. I'm just going to get out of the way. Sometimes what love is, sometimes love is removing yourself from the situation and preventing that person from continuing to be able to do evil and harm. Sometimes that's the most loving thing for them is to prevent them from being able to continue to do evil. Sometimes that, that, sometimes that means putting a stop to it. It's physically stopping that person from being able to continue to do evil and harm. And I know that there's a whole lot of complex situations and that's just a really, really overly simplified version of it. But what we, what we don't want the takeaway to be is that loving your enemy is just allowing them to continue to do evil or hurt or harm. Sometimes the response is to remove yourself or to stop them. And a few of you know that I'm actually in the military. A lot of you don't know that, but I'm in the National Guard. And I, this, this text is the most difficult possible text for those of us in the military. And it should be. I absolutely believe it should be. But usually when people talk to me about it, I say, well, go read the Sermon on the Mount and then let's have a full conversation. Because Jesus says, love your, love your enemy Pray for those who persecute you. How can you possibly reconcile that with being in the military? Again, complicated, complex issue. But the, the historical understanding of this text throughout the last 2,000 years of church history is that same sort of reasoning, that same sort of logic, is that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for someone is actually stop them from continuing to hurt someone else or continuing to hurt you. Sometimes that's the most loving thing. And and it's really nuanced and it's much bigger than that. Uh, but it just seems necessary that someone in the military talking about loving your enemies just simply addresses that. And, and that applies to police officers and other sorts of law enforcement. But that doesn't let you off the hook with the challenging claim of Jesus, challenging uh, command of Jesus to love your enemies. It doesn't let, let me off the hook. It doesn't let us off the hook in any way, shape, or form. So what I want to do in answering that how question, I want to give three really practical suggestions of how we can actually love our enemies. First, uh, 
we want to get to know them. So if, if you think of that in-group, out-group kind of thing, or you think of the other, if you don't know someone in that group, get to know them. Some, some of you will already very well know who that enemy is. But if, if they exist in this kind of other uh, world, get to know them. Because it's way easier to dehumanize and alienate someone that you don't know. And this is scary and it's difficult and it doesn't really seem enjoyable. But in order to love someone and to desire their best and to work for and to seek their best, you have to know them. You have to learn who they are. You have to know their motivations. And that's really hard if you've never actually had a conversation with them. Second, is we want to pray for them. Um, there's this quote that I have that rattles around my head that I don't obey, but I think it's really good. It says, before you criticize someone, pray for them. Before you criticize someone, pray for them. Something unique happens when we pray for people. Uh, when we pray for someone, we actually open up our own hearts, our own minds, and our own lives, and, and in a way, we step into their situation with them. We come, come beside them on behalf of them before God and say, God, would you come? Would you break in on behalf of this person, on behalf of these people? Would you come? Would you reveal yourself? And, and sometimes praying for them means that you pray that God would stop them. Absolutely. That stop them from hurting themselves or hurting you or hurting others. But the prayer is oriented around their good and loving them as God loves them. And lastly, um, we should see ourselves in them. So I'll, I'll read you another quote from the book Compassion. It's really long, but I'll read it. It says, Through compassion, it is possible to recognize that the craving for love that people feel resides also in our own hearts. That the cruelty the world knows all too well is also rooted in our own impulses. Through compassion, we also sense our hope for forgiveness in our friends' eyes and our hatred in their bitter mouths. When they kill, we know that we could have done it. When they give life, we know that we could do the same. For a compassionate person, nothing human is alien. No joy, no sorrow, no way of living, and no way of dying. We're not all that different. You and I, our neighbors and our enemies, we're all made for the same dust of the earth, all made in the image of the same creator with similar, similar desires and passions and capacities for good, but also similar capacities for evil and wrongdoing. And, and loving our enemies is coming to the realization that they are not that different from us. That we all have that craving and desire to be loved, to belong, to be appreciated. And we all have that capacity to wound in response to being wounded. So the call to love our enemies is to realize that our enemies and our neighbors look a whole lot like the people that we see when we look in the mirror. So as we close and transition to uh, receiving communion and singing again, I want to give us some clear prompts of what we can do in response. So here's what we're going to do. As uh, Micaiah and Jacob come back up, we are going to spend some time praying for our enemies. So Jesus calls his disciples to pray for your enemies. So that's, 
That's what we're going to do in response. So here's a couple of things to keep in mind. We're going to pray for their good, uh, for what God wants for them. And you, you may think you know what that is. You may not know what that is. If you, if you think you do, go ahead and pray it. If uh, you don't, ask God to reveal it to you. And this is going to be kind of individualized and silent, but if you want to pray with someone, um, there'll be maybe a few of us in the back who'd be available to pray with you. You should also ask God to draw near to them, uh, to reveal himself and his ways to them. That's, that's part of praying for someone. Uh, and then we're also going to pray and ask God to show you how to love them, how to show love in action and ways to get to know them if you don't already in ways that you can see yourself in them. So as Jacob and Micaiah start to uh, play, I'll just invite you to pray those things. If you can think of someone readily uh, for the enemies or, or maybe this, this has stirred up something else, I just invite you individually to pray as they start in. And then I'll come back in, uh, in a minute and we will end up taking communion together.